This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Listen, this is a serious matter, please. Would you stop joking around over there? <laughs> Good luck with I that one. Got, I genuinely got a bit lost then. <laughs> We're trying to record a serious geek out podcast here, and you're sitting there sniggering in the background. I'm, I'm la- lounging. I, I cannot tolerate I'm that lounging level on my of unprofessionalism. Sofa. I don't care what you're sitting on. I don't care what you're sitting on. I, I will not tolerate that. Okay, Trev. I, I, I'm very sorry, Trev. Very sorry, sorry, Trev. Good. Right out a hundred times after the recording, I will not be naughty and laugh during a podcast. Uh, no problem. There's not. There's normally nothing to laugh at. It's very serious business podcasting. True, true. I, I haven't heard any podcast where they have fun at all about um, <laughs> delivering content and news and reviews. No one has any fun doing podcasting. Listeners, don't believe it when you listen to us here talking to each other in our quizzes and our podcast and our interviews that we're enjoying any of this whatsoever. We hate it. We wish we could stop doing it. Oh, I, I, I tell you, I, I hate being in the same virtual room as you two. It 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 makes my skin crawl. It's the very definition of drudgery. We just, we, we, we have to do it. It becomes a chore. I mean... Yeah. I've said all along, when this thing becomes a chore, you know, we'll have to do more. I mean, <laughs> I've said that all along. Well, on that note, let's do some more. Why not indeed? A geek out, I believe. A geek out indeed. And, I, and this is actually my first geek out. Is it? Mm. You're kidding. Mm-hmm. My first ever geek out. There's, the script has been thrown out of the window... Uh, and, and we can talk about anything. How long have you been with us, Leeson? You've, you've been with us for what, like 15 years now, haven't you? 15, 15 whole years, yeah. And uh, this, is, this yeah, is my first and, one. And you've never done a geek out before. Because the problem is, you see, when, when you say, it's like um, you're trying to start a conversation with someone. You say, tell me a story. Tell me something. And suddenly you can't think of anything at all to say. Uh, so I'm, I'm expecting my brain to do the same thing with a geek out. We can talk about anything from the almost 50 years of Doctor Who's history. I won't be able to decide. That's the problem, getting that starting point, isn't mm. it? Trying mm. to find something, putting that flag in the sand and going, this is where we're going to begin, and we can sort of randomly go from there. So someone has to put that flag in the sand. Ian, do you have a flag? Oh, I put the flag in for the last geek out that you and I had a few months back. So now I've got Leeson's disease, and I'm uh, completely mind a blank <laughs> as to what we could talk about here. Leeson's disease. Oh, okay. Well, I've I got a flag. <laughs> I could put it. Why does everyone hate Attack of the Cyberman so much? Because it's a story that's filled with canon. It's a story that is, I think, purely designed for fans. It's there so fans can get all incredibly excited about all the wonderful things that it tries to explain about uh, Cyberman lore. So, so if it's for the fans, why, why do the fans hate it so? Because I'm not one of those. I don't fans. think fans like being preached to, do they? It's yeah. also it's also very dangerous when you take a story as classic as say Tomb of the Cybermen, which is a nice little story that works in itself, and then you try and graft this additional plot onto the side of it. And if you're not very very careful, you end up destroying the original. To, to give a non Doctor Who example, one of my favourite movies was Highlander. I loved that movie, mm. and it was full of unanswered questions and mysteries. Then some genius made Highlander 2 and tried to answer all those, oh, all those questions. And the answers oh. were so 
diabolically bad. All the Highlanders came yeah. from a different planet. From and, planet Zeist. Oh, yeah. And it, it, actually, oh. it actually retrospectively ruins the first movie. And that's why I, I despise that so much. And I, I think Attack of the Cybermen's got a little bit of that about it, that it doesn't do a great job of improving on Tomb. In fact, if anything, it spoils it. I, I'm, I'm with you on the... Uh, you know, I like unanswered questions. I, I like coming away from a film uh, with things that aren't tied up uh, and TV shows that, with things that aren't tied up. And then if you're at the cinema, you can go to the, the pub afterwards and you can all sort of discuss the possibilities. But I think what you've got to remember about Attack of the Cybermen is it came at a time when you, you couldn't... Uh, there wasn't a huge DVD range that you, you could delve back into the history of Doctor Who. And I, I think it, it was an attempt to... to to give all that, those bits of information, albeit some of the continuity was a bit wonky, um, to, to give someone a, a, a bit of the history, to give the fans a bit of the history that they couldn't just go out and buy or uh, get online and, and look at like you can today. Yeah, well, this this story is the ultimate example of um, Ian Levine, who who was, I suppose, what you call it, the unofficial mm. script consultant or continuity expert for the series. Mm. He, he was wheeled out every time they wanted to put in some form of reference during, you know, the... Baker, Late Davis, and McCoy era. Mm. I think Attack of the Cybermen was one of those ones where it was just too much. I mean, I watched Tomb of the Cybermen recently. It, it's a fantastic story. Mm. I mean, I, I, I remember when it was found in the mid 90s and I was involved in my local Doctor Who club. You know, we, we had a special screening and, you know, they released the VHS within, you know, months of it being found in that Hong Kong uh, uh, cupboard. The question I come away with from this, having watched Tomb of the Cybermen recently, is what questions needed to be answered that required Attack of the Cybermen to answer them? Tomb of the Cybermen seemed to work perfectly well on its own, to be perfectly honest. Well, it does, but I, 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 as far as Attack of the Cybermen is concerned, I've never been too wrapped up in, in the fact that it's, that it's trying to, to, uh, to, to reconcile or, or um, serve as a, an answer to some of the questions in, in Tomb of the Cybermen. I've, I've always looked at it as something sort of standalone. Uh, and bearing in mind, a lot of the people that would have seen it at the time wouldn't have seen uh, Tomb of the Cybermen. And I think it works as a separate piece. Um, and in my head, it's it's the Six Doctor's first story. Uh, if you could tag on the interior scenes uh, of the TARDIS from... Um, uh, oh, why can't I think of the name? Uh, <laughs> it's because I've wiped it from my memory. From Colin Baker's actual first story. Uh, and then go straight into uh, to Attack of the Cybermen. It, it would be almost perfect for me. Because... I have a soft spot for the Sixth Doctor. I I would like to have seen more. I would like to have seen him uh, have better stories. But I think uh, Attack of the Cybermen is a good Cybermen story. Uh, the only thing I do ha- take issue with is I don't think we really needed to have uh, you know the Cyber Controller who was the Cyber Controller from the uh, Tomb of the Cybermen playing mm. the Cyber Controller because he he did have a cyber belly, didn't he? Even down to the same actor as well. Yes. They, they went to the trouble of making sure they had Michael Kilgara who yes. played the cyber controller from Tomb back in the 60s, and they thought, oh, won't it be a fantastic thing for the fans Mm. to have him play the cyber controller in Attack of the Cybermen? But, of course, like like you say, um, Michael's 30 years older at that, or 25 years older at that point, and uh, it shows. Yes, with the the cyber belly. Uh, But uh, Colin Baker's on form in this. I I, I love the the opening scenes. You see the the brashness, but you also see uh, there's the little bit where he's 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 shouting at Perry, booming as he does, and then he just gives her that little twink on the on the end of the nose, and you can see um, where the character would have gone and where the character has gone uh, in in Big Finish. That he is this loud, brash, um, unpredictable Doctor, but he does have he has a, a really nice side to him, and and I really enjoy his performance in this, and I think it should have been his first story. Um, 
and I think it's the point where where I started to soften and, and enjoy the Sixth Doctor because when I was a kid, I was absolutely petrified uh, uh, of his first story. It was it was the unsettling uh, feeling of, of him being scared of things uh, and not being that reliable uh, staple of the show. And as a young kid at the time. Um, I remember I went to bed in pieces and I I got my dad to make a story up. I went, tell me a story with Cybermen in and the old doctor because I, I was I couldn't go to sleep because my doctor had turned mm. into this, this terrifying thing. That brings up another thought, actually, because when, whenever I think of Attack of the Cybermen, the image that instantly comes to my mind is Colin Baker lying on the floor with that Cyberman gun in his hand. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that makes me think of times in the show's history where they've showed the doctor or, or tried to show, yeah, tried, tried to show the doctor as being someone who we don't normally think that he is. Mm. And it sort of leads me back to a question that James asked me in the last podcast back in uh, 169 or whatever it was, was the uh, murder of the guy in dinosaurs on a spaceship um, out of character for the doctor. And, and, and I said, well, yes, for the Matt Smith doctor, it was, but, if it was the sixth doctor, then maybe not. And I suppose it poses an interesting question for me. Has the doctor done undoctorish things? I mean, can you think of one doctor doing something that another doctor just wouldn't even conceive of doing? Well, the doctor always, uh, throughout the whole show's history, has done... Well, I think we have an idea of, of what the doctor... The doctor is, is very moralistic, and, uh, and, and because of the perspective and the way that we... Uh, because we're we're on the doctor's side, but he's, he's he's always wiping out races. He's always killing things. This is what he does in practically every story uh, uh, that the shows ever produced. And it's just our perspective, you know, that we we see it's the goodies and baddies. He he's, he's never been out of character uh, right back to the rock scene uh, in um, in the first serial. It's not usually quite as visceral though as picking up a gun and shooting someone right in front of him while looking him in the eyes. And I was actually going to bring that same scene up because. At the same time as you're creating a story which is steeped in continuity and tradition and real, you know, fan stuff, you put in an element that is guaranteed to upset many of the fans. And there was more than one in that story as well, where the Doctor doesn't do this, that's out of character for the Doctor, especially for a new Doctor still establishing. And that, I think, is something that would upset many, many fans, and it has upset many, many fans, and counters some of the, you know, the the bones that are being thrown to many other parts of the story. It was a very brave thing to do, and and I've heard it said, and and I think it's true, that they they were taking the character back to early Hartnell, Hartnell's first season, where you... You weren't really sure whether this guy was the kind of guy that you should be going around travelling with. There was that ambiguity. Okay, he, he seems to be nice uh, sometimes, but then he does things that you think, you know, have we run away with the wrong guy here? And and I like the fact that they were doing that, but it's, it's only because, um, you know, since that first Hartnell series, the, the, the character had softened and had become this, this sort of safe or sort of cuddly nice guy, um, but I, I really, I really appreciated them, them taking it back to that. Not as a child, I was terrified, but it had a, it had a huge effect on me, and I will never forget uh, you know, Colin Baker's first season. And I suspect that that is why uh, I have such a soft spot for him to uh, to this day. Yeah, well, that's that's true, I suppose. I mean, we've got to remember one of the first major acts of the first Doctor is to kidnap two Earthlings. Hmm. So that's that's that really shows that he's not a cute and cuddly character like you're saying i mean i mean it's not something that he really morphed into i mean i mean the first doctor at his essence was you know a crotchety old guy mm. who, who just didn't really get along with a lot of people sure he had his 
soft side, but in essence, he was, I suppose, the stereotypical view of what an old person is, you know, world-weary and tired and crotchety and angry. But he also had a real dark, darkness to him. He, he, would, he would do things, he would put um, the people that he'd, you know, as, as you say, Trev, kidnapped, in, in danger just to further his um, investigations, you know, the, the whole fluid link, mm. fluid link saga in the, in the first time. That's exactly right. Uh, and it was not, not out of character at that point. I think the entire concept of trying to bring back elements of the first Doctor's character within this is fan service, and I think it's actually showing where the show was going wrong in that era, that it got far, far too obsessed with bringing in what the fans like and doing the continuity back 20 years and all these sort of themes. And for me, actually, Attack of the Cybermen is the canary when it was going wrong. Because there have been elements of it creeping in throughout the JNT era, you know, the recurring stories of Davros, where there was a, a plot theme going throughout them and they were building upon each other. And some of the Time Lord elements were doing the same thing. But that was relatively in the background and as a casual viewer, you could skim past it and didn't really matter, and it was just nice for the fans, which I think is the right way to judge it. Attack of the Cybermen, though, is steeped in this stuff. It's poured all over it. And if you're a casual viewer that doesn't know anything of Who history and just happens to be watching it on a Saturday night, you're not going to be getting half of this stuff. You're going to feel that there's... And you're going to rightly feel that there's another story that you've not seen that you need to have seen to understand this properly. Now, it's not terrible on Attack of the Cybermen, but it's there. And it was later on when you get into particularly the McCoy era, that's where the whole show went. And that's when it fell off a cliff, Mm. as far as I'm concerned. Where does that line in the sand get drawn, though? Because, I mean, I'm thinking of all this stuff, how we're shocked how, you know, they're dredging up 20 years of Who history and stories like Attack of the Cybermen. But the new series does that a lot Mm. now. Um, is it just as bad that they're dredging up stuff from two or three years ago in a Matt Smith story? I, I, I think we're all very pleased. I, I, I hear sort of generally positive things in, in fandom when when the new series tries to tie itself to the old series. Uh, you know, it's that bringing together of the whole um, of the whole thing, and I, I think that's what they were trying to do uh, in Attack of the Cybermen. And when they did these sorts of stories, you know, they were trying to pull it all together in a time. And I say again, where you, you couldn't go back and watch. Uh, as freely the the old episodes, and you've got a generation of kids that that don't remember the old stories. And I think Attack of the Cybermen stands up on its own. I think I, I don't think you need to have seen. And you, 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 I, I never felt. And I think I saw Attack of the Cybermen. Well, I definitely did before I saw Two of the Cybermen, and I didn't notice that um, that it was calling back to stuff. I think it's all explained fairly um, succinctly and you know, and in a, in and of itself. Well, of course, nearly everybody saw Attack before Tomb because Tomb wasn't actually rediscovered until seven years after this broadcast. I do even wonder <laughs> if um, <laughs> I, I, I do even wonder whether this was some attempt to try and almost remount Tomb of the Cybermen in the belief that it would never be found again. It's possible, yeah. I mean, that maybe that's part of my be initial a- question that I didn't really sort of enunciate well. That because at a time when VHSs were scarce, or they were really only starting to kick off, really, as, as, as far as you know, fans were concerned, that the show felt it could do stories like Attack of the Cybermen and get away with it, thinking that you know, no one's going to care about a story from 1960, whatever. Because it would be a very Ian Levine thing to do, to try and remount an old story that's not... not I mean, he's famously done that over and over again since. I, I was wondering, I was thinking of a McCoy story like Silver Nemesis, where they tried to layer in um, maybe not direct continuity references to the past, but certainly tried to tie stuff into the, who the Doctor is, whether that was too fanny or not. Certainly that stuff about you know the Doctor being part of the um, 
the initial three, the Omega Rassilon hmm. triangle. Um, whether that was too far or whether that was done at just the right level to be intriguing yet still interesting to watch. I don't know. I mean, the, the McCoy era, I, I watched at the time and, and enjoyed. And then when I came back, to, I did have a, a period where, you know, I, where I, I didn't watch as much Doctor Who and I, and I wasn't as... I, I hadn't come out of the Doctor Who closet, as it were. Um, and I came back to it um, when I was a bit older. And when I went back to watch the McCoy era, I just it, it just didn't work for me. But once I'd immersed myself again in the history of the show, then I began to sort of enjoy the McCoy era a bit and, and this is what we were, we were saying that it's it's for the fans and if you don't know what's going on uh, and the history then you, you're, you're a bit lost a bit bamboozled by it you, you, there's so much information you have to bring yourself in order to understand the McCoy era but when you have when you do bring it and you have all that information at your disposal you do you, you get more from it I'm not convinced I mean I think some of those later McCoy stories they present as if there is this additional information that you bring to the, the table but actually it's not there you look at stories like Ghostlight or Curse of Fenric both of them mm. as you watch them it feels as if there was a, a previous story which this is the sequel to and there's all these plot elements that the Doctor seems to know about and the characters seem to know about which you don't know about as a viewer but actually there was no previous story it, 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 that was when the mystery element just got completely overblown to the point where even fans couldn't watch it and particularly understand it uh, unless you sort of you know watched it five times in a row and read the book and then thought about it and talked about it in a forum to eventually piece it all together again and that's why yeah. it completely lost the plot in terms of the general public who uh, aren't going to care about that kind of thing Where do stories like that fail? And arguably stories like, I don't know, let's say Invasion of Time, for example, where do they work? Because you certainly don't hear fan criticism of um, self-referential stuff in stories like that. But if you watch Invasion of Time or even Ark of Infinity, it does hark back to an earlier part or, or an earlier era of Doctor Who, like Invasion harks back to Deadly Assassin, for example, as the ongoing character of Beruza. Where do stories like that get it right? Well, I wouldn't say the Invasion of Time gets it right at all. The Invasion of Time is awful for all sorts of different reasons. Um, oh! <laughs> you sound exactly like someone I used to work with on an old podcast who hated Invasion of Time with a vengeance. Oh, I'd love to know why you don't like it. Oh, it's terrible. Um, uh, the, the story uh, is nonsensical. Um, the Santorans when they finally turn up, oh, just why didn't they get some good actors to to to, to play the Santorans? They, they, it, it's the the worst performance uh, from from Santorans that, that I've ever seen. The Vardens, oh my god, the Varden performances. Oh, you just think because they haven't, uh, you can't see them that they've just got any old actor in, or I say actor. Um, no, I just oh, the whole the whole thing doesn't doesn't hang together. It plods on too long. The Santoran twist at the end is possibly the best bit, but then they open their mouths. Uh, no, oh. I've never, I haven't even brought myself. I've, I've bought the DVD. Uh, I haven't brought myself to, to to watch it. The only reason I would I would dig it out now is to watch it with the uh, with the enhanced CGI Vardens, and I, I still haven't uh, I haven't been bored enough to try that yet. I have to admit, last last time I watched it, I fell asleep before the Santorans came along. And I, oh I haven't, I haven't gone back to it since. But I don't hate it to the same levels that uh, Leeson appears to do so. But uh, I, I, it doesn't sort of uh, soar for me as one of the great stories ever. I don't understand the lack of love for Invasion Time. I really don't. I, I, I love the story. I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, we get a devious doctor in it. We, I mean, th- here is a perfect example of a doctor being something that he normally isn't. Hmm. But it is absolutely brilliant. 
that we're not sure what's happening with this character for probably, you know, the first two episodes, perhaps, mm. while it, once it's finally revealed that he's actually trying to stop the invasion mm. of Gallifrey and, and, and of time, presumably. Sure, the Vardens are plasticky. Ha, 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 ha. I, I think that wonderful reveal at the end of part four, where the Sontarans turn up, is one of the most fantastic cliffhangers in Doctor Who ever. I mean, for someone like me who watched this when he was quite a young lad, I can't believe I was ever that young, but <laughs> I was. It was incredible. I mean, you thought you got to the end of a four-part story and then suddenly the Sontarans turn up and you realize, hey, this isn't over yet, guys. There's more. Well, I agree with you that that's the best bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's not up against any much competition with, with the rest of it. I mean, I, li- I like the, the initial uh, couple of episodes with, with the uncertainty of the Doctor. Um, that's all very interesting. Um I just don't think... I think it feels like what it is, and it was rushed. It was... Um, hadn't somebody been commissioned to write that episode and then had failed, and they literally had to cobble this together. It was the wasn't the, the director and um, Graham Williams, or was it the script editor? Anyway, whoever it was, uh, had to suddenly cobble this together in a matter of days, uh, and I think, it, I think it feels like that. You've used that word twice. What's that? Cobble. Cobble together. It, it does. It feels, it feels as if it's just been you know, uh, rushed out uh, over a f- few evenings with a few bottles of wine and two people desperately trying to, to put something together so they can make something. Sounds like a uh, Doctor Who podcast. <laughs> <laughs> to, to come back to what you were asking, Trev, in terms of where's that fine line, I think that in the modern series, Moffat actually, mo- thinking of where he references classic Who... I think he pitches it just perfectly, which is that there's a scattering of stuff all through the shows where he'll sort of, in a passing sentence, talk about temporal grace or isomorphic controls or something mm. like that, which is a fan you go, ah, yes, I know what that is, and it puts a big smile on your face. If you're not a fan, and I I'm, I'm, don't want to be too snotty saying fan here, actually, if you're not our sort of classic Who era fan that knows all this stuff... That's going to go straight past you, and it doesn't make any difference to your enjoyment of the story. In fact, you won't even realise there's a reference there you're missing. So it in no way detracts from the enjoyment of the more casual viewers, but gives a little extra something to us fans. And that, I think, is where these things have to be pitched, is that it can add entertainment to some people, but doesn't take entertainment away from others. And where it starts becoming essential to understanding what's going on, or even actually to the point where you know there's something you're missing as soon as you know there's something you're missing that's going to bother some people i hate watching Mm. anything where i know there's a part one and i've not seen it and and i'll stop and i'll go and watch the part one because if it's obvious that you're missing bits then even if it's not essential to the plot that's going on it just annoys me and as soon as you start annoying your audience like that they're going to walk away yeah and i think it's just even if you're not missing things if, if you if you're aware that there are things previous you start to you you even start to imagine that you're missing things well if i'm missing that then uh, maybe there's something else i'm missing you can sort of start inventing things that you might be missing uh, and yeah and it uh, distracts you from the story and it's very very difficult or sorry very very dangerous as a fan and this goes for the writers as well sometimes to try and judge that because you can't switch off your knowledge of the show you know things that we might think of as being obvious and well known and everyone understands that 
a more casual viewer might be completely oblivious to this stuff. And what you might think of as being a very subtle reference that's not going to spoil your entertainment and won't, you know, impinge upon somebody else's awareness. We can pitch it wrong because you can't take away your knowledge of the show. You can't take away your knowledge of the backstory. And some of the writers, mm. particularly the fan writers, and this is again where in the J I think in the J and T era it started to go a bit pear shaped, is they they can't switch that stuff off. And, and it's going to bleed into their writing whether they want it to or not. Well, I don't know so much about uh, about that. I mean, there's a whole different podcast, you'll geek out about uh, you know, J&T's choice of writers. Um, but, I mean, the show nowadays is made by fans. It was, was brought back by fans. And he seemed to have managed to, to rein in that, that, uh, that side of things, that feeling the need to, to call back and tie it, all, tie it all back. So I think it's possible to be a fan, and as is evident by the new, new show and make a show which isn't self-referential it's possible but it's very hard work and i've seen interviews with Stephen mm. moffat where he talks about he's got to be really really ruthless with himself and it's going to be really mm. careful with him and his whole team that whenever they find themselves going down that rabbit hole of fan stuff which they love and they think would be neat they, they're really ruthless and hard and say you know this is a couple of hundred thousand people out of an audience of nine million we, we can't go down there it might have been at the Asylum of the Daleks interview, uh, premiere where he was talking about it, but certainly I've seen him in interviews in DWM talking about how he actually deliberately walks away from anything that he thinks is going to be too fanny. I mean, uh, yeah, do, do, does this does this put the kibosh on uh, any classic doctors appearing for the 50th then? You think, do you think uh, that his brain would be saying, look, I'd love to do this, but should I not? I think it puts the kibosh. I mean, I'm, I would be very surprised, to be honest, to see any classic doctors in the 50th anniversary in, in, in any major role. I think we can pretty much guarantee Tennant will be back. Mm -hmm. Maybe Eccleston, if we can uh, twist his arm and, I don't know, put enough dollar signs in front of his face, perhaps. It's not it about the money. Artistically relevant for him or, or some such nonsense. Bring in some G.I. Joe. Possibly, yeah. I mean, some 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 quality drama. I Eccleston um, gets a bad rep. It's not about it's not about the money for him. <laughs> well, no, no. That, that, it was the artistic that, integrity that of GI Joe that made him do the movie. That's mm. right. <laughs> no. Yes, yes. It wasn't the lorry full of cash that was wheeled up to his house the, the day before. Like I said, I'd, I'd be surprised if we see a classic doctor taking on a major role. It would be a shame. Probably for a variety of reasons, but... Oh, it would be yeah, such a I'd, shame I'd, if we if we miss this opportunity. It's the last opportunity, isn't it, really, if, we, if we're if we honest with ourselves. It would be a shame, but I think it goes back to what Ian was saying about, you know, Moffat having to rein in the excesses. Modern Who audiences really don't have a clue who the Doctor was before Tennant or even Eccleston. To be perfectly blunt, they do not. They have... Minds like goldfishers, they mm. really do. Um, and it goes back to my comments previously about every time a companion or companions leave, it's the best exit ever. Mm. Oh, my goodness, that was so fantastic. But they were saying that the year before and the year before that and the year before that. As a general rule, fans of Doctor Who or modern fans of Doctor Who are fickle. They really are. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I... I didn't know, uh, when I went I to my doctor, Peter Davison, uh, was the first doctor. I, I didn't know about any of the earlier doctors, but it didn't stop me from going back and, uh, and appreciating them, even loving some of them more than, than the one that was my first doctor. Yeah, but you haven't got modern Doctor Who fans doing that like we did. They I, don't do my, that. They no, really don't. They, they, they consume their current Doctor Who, jump on Facebook and Twitter and you know, call it the best whatever ever. 
and then move on to the next series, and then Doctor Who comes back next year. Yeah, because and, and, we, and we haven't got again. a huge fan kickback against Tennant still being the best Doctor ever, and the name of Tennant doesn't come up in comparison with every single thing that Matt Smith ever does. I think you've I, proved my point exactly I, I, because they've nah. moved on. No, they've no, moved no, on. But it does. Now it, it, Matt Smith yeah, is haven't. the best. There's, there's a huge ever. number of tenant fans out there who still keep banging on about how much better than than Matt Smith he is. And I think that they're, they're fans. The, the, I'm talking about the, the the general public who, by your own admission, makes up the majority of our audience. That they move from one high point to the next. They don't reminisce. Nah, they don't look back. I they move I, on to the next. I think that's we're, we're being. A touch condescending to 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 uh, to fans of the new show, and, and it's a bit of a sweeping generalisation to say that that that's the that's the the whole of um, uh, of fans of, of New Who. My other half, uh, my good lady, uh, was a fan of the of the new series um, uh, when we met, uh, and has now become more of a fan of the classic series. And I'm I, I'm sure that there there's a large proportion of people that have become big fans of the new series and have now delved back into into, into classic Who. My mum still talks about seeing William Hartnell on the show, you know, 45 years ago or, or 50 mm. years ago. So, I mean, there's definitely people out there. I, I think that they will definitely do something to bring the old show into the anniversary year. I don't think you could do an anniversary without... I mean, the whole point of an anniversary is you're acknowledging the 50 years that has gone before. So they'll do yeah. it somehow, but I yeah, think right. the way they go about it is like going to be very interesting. the uh, companions of Doctor Who special and the monsters of Doctor Who special and the villains of Doctor Who special. No. They've somehow ignored the fact that the classic series exists. That, that's what made my blood boil about those specials that came out what, last year or whatever it was. They ignored the fact that there's this rich history of Doctor Who that happened, you know, gasp, shock, horror before 2005. I hated them because they they ignored everything. If that's all you're going to do, then it's not a 50th anniversary. It's an 8th or 9th anniversary um, mm. from when a show came back in 2005. That, that, that's pointless. So this is going to be the 50th anniversary. It's got to acknowledge the old show because otherwise there is nothing to be celebrating. I just think the way they go about it... I mean, I, I've long banged on about my idea that they're going to do a Trouble with Tribbles type thing where Matt Smith will visit selected classic era stories and and they'll mix his character in with those stories and one of the reasons i think that that would work is that you've still got matt smith there for the modern audience to hang on to and you know he's having an adventure through scenes on uh, in, on various planets and various things happening the modern audience who perhaps don't know the references don't need to know the references because matt smith will be there with probably a companion to walk them through it explain what's going on keep them interested rather than just vanishing off into a subplot with paul mcgann that no one's going to understand what on earth is going on and i think some, yeah, so something like that would work what i don't think you're going to see which i've seen lots of people talk about is you know an hour of paul mcgann fighting the t- time war and then regenerating to christopher eccleston without any sign of the modern show at all that's not going to happen that mm. would be the fan service no no, no. but uh, what 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 you're saying about the tribbles type of thing for me i mean as much as i love that deep space nine story i, I think it's wonderful it's not about a celebration of the classic series it's about the modern series and the way it interacts with the classic. And if we had that type of thing with um, Doctor Who, it would be more about seeing Matt Smith on the set of Attack of the Cybermen or you know, Matt Smith on the set of Curse of Fenric rather than celebrating what classic Who was about. To me, that's not a celebration. To me, that's saying about still how it's about new series, new series, new series, not classic series. Maybe we could have a moment where the 11th Doctor is on the set of Attack of the Cybermen 
uh, and gives a little eye roll to his former self shooting the cyber controller. And maybe just to reconcile that moment. I mean, whatever they do, they'll have to do it really, really well. Otherwise, the fans will go bonkers. Because you know that wherever, if they do something like that, wherever they drop him in, 30 seconds after the show finishes, every fan in existence will be getting their DVDs out and watching the scene mm. to make sure that it's still mm. actually coherent and they're not cheated. I honestly think they're not going to do that. They're, they're, they're not going to do the same sort of thing they've already done with Matt Smith, dropping him into Lauren and Hardy films. I mm. don't think that's going to happen for the anniversary. I, I, I think that would be one of the ultimate disrespects for the classic series to suddenly drop in the new mm. series into the old. Um, As if it, it doesn't stand up on its own uh, without, you know. No, yeah. no, no, no. I, I, I would more love some form of other interaction where we see some specially filmed stuff. You know, similar to what they did with Time Crash. Sure, that was done tongue-in-cheek mm. with uh, Davison, but something along those lines, something where they're not just cobbling together footage from 40 years ago in a in a vain attempt to make a homage to classic who yeah yeah i mean i, I genuinely my my brain I, I don't know what i want from the 50th i, I i'm pleased that we've, we've heard about the the mark gassis um um drama about the the early years um but, but I, I don't know what i want i i, I like there's a bit of me that likes the idea of the trouble with tribbles thing there's a bit of me that likes the idea of, of having every surviving doctor in it in some way there's a bit of me that that would be happy with just you know just the three new series doctors i i gen- i mean I'm, I'm glad i'm not stephen moffat having to make the decisions because you can see how tough it would be uh, and mm. you know, reining in that fan impulse as we were talking about earlier on it must be a nightmare for him to have all that weight on your shoulders and to know that fandom is just waiting to snap your writing hand off as soon as you get it wrong <laughs> But they'll do that whatever he does. You know, he can make the most perfectly crafted story ever done in Doctor Who. Mm. And a large segment of fandom would still go and castigate him and say, you've just taken a mess all over my favourite show and I'll I'm, and, you know, send the death threats over Twitter and all the usual rubbish that goes on. So yeah. he has, and, and, and I know that Moffat is aware of that because, again, he's spoken about those things in interviews that he cannot please all the people all the time. In fact, he's doing quite well if he can no. please some of the people some of the time. So he'll be And he'll be there's no about such that. thing as a perfectly crafted story. There really isn't. I mean, people out there will um, wax lyrical about dinosaurs on a spaceship. But mm. for me, it's one of the biggest travesties of Doctor Who ever. I enjoyed it. There is no such thing as a perfectly crafted story. Exactly. And like you say, we, we will always get detractors. People will walk into the 50th anniversary with their own expectations about what they want to see. We voiced our own. So there is bound to be disappointment, whatever happens. That's the best thing about Doctor Who is there is a perfectly crafted story for everyone. I love Attack of the Cybermen. You love Invasion of the Time. And Ian loves dinosaurs on a spaceship. It's... The multifaceted world of Doctor Who, it's a wonderful thing. And only one of us can be right, so we'll <laughs> leave it at that then. Well, gentlemen, I need to call time because I hear my dessert um, rapidly approaching. I believe we've only got time to have a listen to uh, a little big finish review, Ian, that uh, you, yourself and Michelle have put together. Yes, we've been delving back into the history of Big Finish and have listened to the I Davros spin-off series. Uh, so this week we can listen to our review of the first two parts of the series. So I, Davros, this was a, a spin-off series that Big Finish released back in 2006, taking a, an in-depth look at the creation 
or the genesis or the early years of the character Davros, what was it that happened to him to make him become the, the evil scientist that we see when we first meet him in Genesis of the Daleks? Four stories in this spinoff series. We're going to tackle the first two this week, which are Innocence, written by Gary Hopkins, and Purity, written by James Parsons and Andrew Sterling Brown. I came at this actually fairly cold. Obviously, from the name, you can see something of what it's about. But um, I actually... And the, the framing device is that Davros is on trial, and I think it's set around about the time of Revelation and Remembrance of the Daleks, when the whole sort of Dalek faction thing was going on. He's on trial with the Daleks, and he goes back through his life to give examples of why he is of value to them. Um, and I was actually expecting to have lots of little vignettes from his early life, but actually what we get is just his life story. It starts with Davros in this first episode as uh, a small boy, aged 16, uh, living with his uh, parents and his uh, scheming mother, Calcula. And what was quite interesting is I thought in the very early scenes, uh, Davros was actually quite a innocent and fairly well-adjusted child. He's, he's concerned about other creatures and he's concerned about whether they uh, are living or dying or happy. He's, he's almost an environmentalist. It's dangerous to swim in the lake. All sorts of things could live in there. All sorts of things do. Look at this, Yarvel. It was at the bottom. It's a rock. Take it. No, it's wet. Take it, go on. It's a rock, Davros. There must be millions of these scattered about. It's just a boring old gob. It moved. I felt it move. Of course it moved. It's alive. It's a rock. Rocks don't move. That's because it isn't a rock. It's a shell, a carapace, a protective layer. The creature itself lives inside. And you shouldn't have dropped it. You wouldn't like to be dropped from a great height. If I had a protective shell, it wouldn't bother me. Davros, you're not taking it home. We're not having that disgusting thing in the house. Have you no interest in other life forms? There's more to Skaro than Carlids and Thals. Life is life, whatever outward shape it takes. However many legs or eyes it has. That thing is ugly. Throw it into the lake, because I'm telling you, it isn't coming home with us. We evolved from creatures not dissimilar to this, over millions of years, <sighs> to become what we are now. Maybe in another million years, We'll have evolved back again. Maybe some of us have already started. Yeah, this was fascinating. Now, now the actor that played the 16-year-old Davros uh, is a, an actor called Rory Jennings, who also happened to play Tommy, the son in The Idiot's Lantern. So he had already done a stint on televised Doctor Who. He does an extraordinary performance. In fact, he was so good, I missed him when he wasn't in uh, part two but because of course Davros has to grow up and get performed by Terry Malloy for the rest of the series but he did a wonderful job it was really kind of strange and bizarre and a little unsettling to find myself sort of cheering for Davros here in the early stories knowing what he would become at the end but yeah th there is an empathy that you feel for the character at the beginning he, th this whole series which is extremely well done uh, is kind of like watching an accident you, you know something horrific is happening but you can't quite look away you're fascinated really interesting uh, uh, look at how this character developed uh, it, it was and actually uh you, you do feel that davros is the hero and i actually felt he was actually relatively the, the hero throughout all four of them even though he's obviously a monster and increasingly a monster as time goes on um and as you say it's, it's, it's very well acted and very well put together and very enjoyable one thing I did think was slightly off-putting was that what you clearly have here is an arc of where he starts off with this innocent child and ends up as being one of the most terrible monsters in the universe. 
and I thought the journey was a little bit up and down. I was expecting a relatively smooth arc from good to evil and the sort of the logical stepping stones along the way. And actually, at the end of this first story, he does some really quite horrendous things and you immediately see the flashes to him being a psychopath or a sociopath and some really ugly things that he does to people. But then in the second story, he's back to being a bit of an everyman and, you know, a young guy trying to make his way and, you know, not being listened to and wanting to do more. And I find it a little bit odd that he went from being this character you could root to, to a monster and back again a few times through through the episodes. Whereas a, a more logical transition, I think, would have felt smoother. But to be honest, it's a very minor niggle and what is an extremely enjoyable story uh, going through his early years. Yeah, you make a good point. The uh, the action that he takes at the end of the first story, it's interesting, there don't seem to really be any consequences that follow him through. But one of the things I love about this series is how carefully it sows the seeds along the way for what Davros will become. I mean, in the in, in the early stories, we see him having a fascination with mutation and evolution and, and how life can survive in, in whatever form it needs to to survive. What have you done with the specimens? Prolonged exposure to radioactivity may cause some side effects, some alteration to the genetic makeup, some small amount of mutation, both internal and external. But they survive. Alas... Not always. Not often, in fact. And certainly not for long. Then it's impossible to know what the ultimate form of such mutation would take. The end result of such an evolution. Evolution? Yes. I never thought of it in that way. You're right. Mutation. Evolution by another name. Yes. You're right. You see how some of these concepts then become twisted as he grows up. Um, extremely well done. You know, this is called I, I Davros. It's sort of the, the Doctor Who version of I Claudius and uh, intricately plotted and, and fascinating to follow through. Moving into the second episode, here you have Davros as a young soldier uh, in, I think, his uh, late 20s, nearly 30. And what was odd here is that the, the character, who's obviously a brilliant scientist, and is known to be a brilliant scientist, is turned into a soldier against his will. And I, and I found that a slightly odd direction to take him in. Um, but it gives him the opportunity to get to have a few adventures along the way. But that felt like a, a, almost a slight diversion along his path. But on the other hand, it, it gives him an opportunity to uh, see what's going on in the Thal Dome and, and get a hold of some of their technological ideas that eventually you'll see worked into the Daleks. And, and perhaps more importantly, he crosses the wasteland twice and has some really important encounters with life forms. And of course, the, the mutants that are referenced in Genesis of the Daleks are, are out there. There's one really chilling sequence where he meets a mutant um, who is horrifically uh, scarred and damaged by radiation. My dream is of finding you and making you suffer or what kept me alive. Now we're finally face to face. I don't have the strength to spit at you. <laughs> Fascinating. Your hatred of me is what has kept you alive. Pathetic. But fascinating. I think your time is up. I only hope that one day you find out what it's like to live like this. Yes, you can see the making to the Daleks seeded throughout these stories, and it's done very expertly with a relatively light touch as well. It would be easy to just 
you know, crowbar it in everywhere, and it's not. It's done in a relatively subtle way, um, but quite satisfying one as well. Um, and it's what is interesting is that a lot of the science that he's doing is all very biological and mutations, which, of course, it is picked up in Genesis of the Daleks. That is what he was doing. And it talks at great length about his ideas to see how far you can mutate the race and what's left. But in the later stories of, of Davros in the TV show, he came much more of a sort of a, a, a scientist doing uh, technology rather than this genetic engineering type thing that is in here. So it was, it was very fascinating. And to be continued in our look at the next two stories in the spinoff series next time. Oh, well, there you go. Well, actually, I haven't listened to uh, I, Davros yet, but certainly after that review, I'll have to uh, bump it up my uh, listening schedule. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Michelle. You're very welcome. And I'll say that on behalf of Michelle You're... as well. I was just about to try and do an impression then, but I thought better of it. Oh, she, oh she... please, please do. Please do. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because <laughs> she'll send an email and it'll be great. And you know yes. how much oh, Michelle yeah, loves yeah. Brits doing American accents. Uh, th- this, this, is, this is what made my mouth stop. <laughs> well if we're not going to have an accent then uh, i think we'll have to uh, leave it at that gentlemen thank you for uh, taking part in today's geek out um my goodness we did cover a lot of uh, topics very quickly there didn't we Mm, it's a lot easier than i than i thought it would be once as you say once you get the ball rolling it's it's almost harder to stop than it is to start I love these sort of podcasts. It's the only Doctor Who podcast where I can sit down and watch a series of Bruce Willis films in preparation for it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, I think it's time to leave. So we will bid you all adieu out there in uh, Doctor Who podcast land and see you next week where we will be talking about fandom creativity in Doctor Who, people who have created uh, TARDIS tea cosies and and console-shaped cushions and all that sort of stuff. So... We will see you next week for the more creative side of Doctor Who. Until then, bye-bye, Ian. Bye-bye. And bye-bye, what's your name? Leeson. Cheerio. Oh, that's it. (laughs) Bye-bye, Leeson. (laughs) Take care, Trev. Bye. Bye. (laughs) That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Music